The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at halliburtonlabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Today I'm going to be speaking with Alex Esposito. Alex is the CEO and co-founder of Circuit. Alex co-founded the company with James Mears in 2011. Aiming to solve the first mile, last mile transportation problem, Alex and his co-founder have built a successful electric vehicle service for cities and private companies around the United States. Since starting, the company has expanded to over 20 cities and provided over 4 million rides without charging a single dollar or burning an ounce of gas. Highlighted as a Forbes Next 1000 entrepreneur, Alex has participated in multiple accelerators like UrbanX, LACI, and CivStart, and has also been a featured speaker at events like Smart Cities New York and 2020 Cities Boston. Before starting Circuit, Alex earned his MBA from Bentley University and worked at both Vistaprint and Accenture. So without further ado, here's my interview with Alex Esposito. Alex, welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So just to get a sense of geography, where are you at today? So today I'm in New York, but I I'm normally I spend quite a bit of time down in South Florida and then spend quite a bit of time in New York. And then under a normal travel environment, I'm out on the West Coast quite a bit. So the company is between New York, Florida and California. What is it about people that are from New York that migrate to Florida? All, I mean, I, I hear about this all the time, you know, like, oh, they went down to Florida, and you know, like New Yorkers. It seems like Florida is like their, you know, their go-to spot. Is that, is that pretty accurate? You know, it's funny because I, I grew up out in eastern Long Island in East Hampton. And used to go down to Florida to visit my grandparents and was never really a, a huge, huge fan. And then when we expanded the business to Florida, specifically South Florida, I really, you know, grew to, to like the area. Spent a lot of time in West Palm Beach, but we have operations in Hollywood and Fort Lauderdale and, and Palm Beach Gardens as, as well as West Palm. And the quality of life's pretty good, especially in the winter. <laughs> and I think there is such an audience. I've heard people refer to that area as the sixth borough of New York. You have two airports there and three in New York. It's There's pretty much a flight every half hour. And so I like, obviously, I'm a New Yorker originally, but I do like spending some time in Florida. I think it's a good environment for new business. It's also really seen this, this sort of growth of, of people moving there from the Northeast, which I think has encouraged a lot of economic activity, a lot of innovation. And so it's definitely a different place today than it was when I was visiting my grandparents as a kid and, and wasn't a huge fan of the area. So you you started your company pretty much, was it while you were in school or after school? So it, we have an interesting origin story. I went to school at Bentley University up in Boston and then was working for Accenture and consulting. And a good friend of mine from high school, James Mears, was working for Morgan Stanley at the time. And so we grew up in East Hampton and there was always a big problem with, with parking at the beaches. And at the same time, there was an under, underutilized parking lot in town about 1.2 miles away. So we had kicked around this idea of a beach bus when we were in college. And then 
decided to bring it to life after college. And at the time we called it our five to nine. So we, we both had our full-time desk jobs and we did both for about three years before we went full-time with Circuit. And at the time the business was called The Free Ride. So you guys started as a part-time thing aside from your regular job, which, you know, you, you especially nowadays, you hear a lot of people talk about, well, this is sort of my side hustle, right? Like this is what I'm doing. Like I'm, but you were putting that into practice. So you were working on this project for, you know, X amount of hours per week, obviously not a full-time job, but you were developing and, and cultivating this idea, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we would, we were also fortunate because it was seasonal when we started. So we could be really, really busy for the summer months where we would have the, the service running in the Hamptons. And then we obviously had our, our regular desk jobs. But what was nice about that was it sort of gave us the fall and winter and spring to go back and say, what did we do well? What can we do better next year? So it wasn't an all at once thing, which allowed us to maintain our regular jobs while also dividing up our vacation time and, and running the service in the summer months. So I think it was a good way to, to kick things off because you always learn a lot by doing. And I think a lot of times there's this, if I want to start a company, I need to quit everything else. And, you know, start to figure things out. And then, you know, when the time is right, if the opportunity is there, you know, that's when you can make that leap. And it might not be as big of a leap as, as you think, if you can sort of grow the, the side hustle, as they call it, gradually. Right. Yeah. So you guys would have these, you know, quote unquote, after action reviews every season, right? Now, is that something that you guys still practice on a consistent basis, like maybe once a quarter? Or how does that, is that something that you guys still do? I mean, it sounds like something you incorporated from the beginning so and helped you be successful. So is that something that, that you guys still practice? It is, but it's something we could probably do more. So we, we have a great team now. And, and fortunately, we have a number of operations that are year, year-long operations. We're not as focused on finding new seasonal operations for, for obvious reasons. So because of that, we're, we're now we're busy year-round and we're working on this full-time. But with the team, we, we do quarterly reviews. You know, James and I spend quite a bit of time together. But I think it's, you know, that's always a challenge. As you grow, you have less time to kind of take a step back and take a look at the higher level snapshot of the business. And sometimes, you know, even just taking a day with your co-founder to say, okay, what are we doing? What do we want to do? It can go a long way. I mean, now with COVID, I know a lot of people can work remotely. Do you guys have a space that you guys share on a consistent basis or do you guys operate on your own from different locations and then just communicate in between? How does that typically work? What's that dynamic like? You know, we're fortunate for for technology. I think our team, so something that's unique about Circuit is is we have a team at corporate, and I put that in air quotes because we, we don't really consider ourselves your typical corporate types, but then we have teams of, of managers and an amazing team of drivers. And so unlike other rideshare services, we're actually W2ing, paying, W2 pay and train all of our drivers. And so our team has been stretched geographically for, for quite a while. And so when COVID came, that was nothing new to us. And so you know, through Zoom, through Slack, through other technologies, you know, everyone stays in close contact. And then we try to overlap trips as much as we can. So, you know, spending a lot of time, I've been spending a lot of time recently between Florida and New York. James and I are actually going to be passing by each other. I think he's heading to Florida next week. And then we have a great team in LA. We, 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 have, we have good teams in all areas and a lot of folks from the team are, are rotating. But another thing that we've done, you know, as it relates to COVID is we have office hours with the team. So it's a couple times throughout the week where that we carve out where 
we're all on Zoom and we're all working on our own stuff. But I think you miss some of those, you know, hey, just walk over to their desk and ask them a quick question. And, you know, a quick question in, in the virtual world can can lead to a bunch of back and forth emails for something that could take a minute. So, so we've used that as kind of a, a way to hack not being together. That's smart. You know, I worked for a company many years ago and my supervisor would tell me, you know, he'd say, Hey, you know, every once in a while, get up from your desk and go walk over and talk to, you know, talk to your coworkers and have these collisions, he would call them. Cause there's just times where just, you know, Obviously, we can't have as much face-to-face, but with technology, we at least get to simulate that in some sense. Obviously, it's not replacing face-to-face 100%, but it gets you about 80% of the way there, right? And you cut through a lot of what you were talking about, this you know unnecessary delay of communication and maybe even like misunderstanding, right? Because in an email, you might not, the tone might not come across correctly or you know, you just might not grasp the idea correctly versus having, you know, even like right now, right, we're not in the same place, but we can see each other. We can sort of read each other's body language and facial expressions. And it makes for us, I think what I think is a much deeper conversation versus just having a dry email, right? Like just an email exchange. Now, don't get me wrong. There's times where email is good because you can, you know, if especially if you're sharing documentation, like that gives you some traceability and a permanent record. Okay, I've got this somewhere. I can go access it if I need to, right? But, you know, obviously there was a professor that I had who, and this was like a communications class. And he, he said, everywhere I go, I take, a, I take with me a notebook and paper. So anytime I talk to somebody, I write everything down because I'm notorious for forgetting things. Versus, you know, like we show up to each other's office and we've got coffee mug in hand and we're just, you know, mm-hmm. talking about this and we're not taking any notes, we're taking mental notes, but, you know, you want to be able to like record some details of that conversation, especially if it's a critical one, you come back to it and say, okay, what were, what were we talking about again? What was, what were the highlights of that conversation? What, were there any action items? Is there something I'm supposed to send you or whatever? He made it a point to to always write these things down so that he wouldn't forget. I mean, you know, the guy, you know, he worked and taught at the same time. So I know he always had a lot going on. So it made sense to me. And so I, I try and do the same thing. Everywhere I go, I've got something to write with and write on because I'm notorious for forgetting things. But if I write it down, you know, that almost commits it to memory. Just the action of moving my hand and writing it on paper. I don't even necessarily will go back and look at my notes, but just having that action done will usually remind me like, I think I wrote something down. Oh yeah, this is what it was, right? Yeah. And it's, it's funny. I'm the same way. And, and I actually, I like to go back, you know, sometimes I have stacks of old notebooks and I could spend a half hour looking at an old notebook from a year and a half ago and, you know, five things click. It's when, when we first started, I remember James and I were down in Florida and we were speaking to this gentleman whose name's escaping me now, but he was a former exec from McDonald's and I think led their marketing in the 70s and 80s and very interesting guy and and works with a handful of startups. And we're we're sitting there meeting with him. And he says, I never met a smart person that didn't take notes during the meeting. And James and I both (laughs) looked at each other without a notebook and we said, "Um, do you have a pen we can borrow? So (laughs) that that, that one rings true for sure. That's funny. That's really funny. Yeah, I, I think, you know, that was, so when I used to interview people, I would always sort of make a mental note. Are they taking notes? You know, what, what are their actions? You know, obviously 
that was something that I would look for because if they weren't, it was almost like a an indicator that maybe they just weren't going to be as detail oriented as I would need them to be for the task, right? So that was always something that I would take in the back of my head, like, is this person taking notes? If we're having a meeting, I would look around and just do a quick survey of who's on their phone and who's taking notes, right? Because sometimes that's just something that you see in, in today's world is people will be in a meeting and they're, you know, they're doing this number. And I don't know if maybe they're taking notes on their phone, but it's typically something that I'm looking for. And maybe I'm just a little too analog sometimes. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older. So, you know, I remember a day and age where we didn't have, you know, a laptop in front of us or a phone in front of us all the time. So, you know, you had to have pen and paper. You needed to write. And in your military as well, like when I was in the military, you had to always have something to write with. You hear a phrase which was prepare to copy, which was your indication that you needed to write this down. And so if you didn't have a writing instrument and something to write on, then it was going to be a bad day for you. Okay. That's well, that's good to know. <laughs> and I completely agree. I think the other thing is, is oftentimes in conversation, when you're in a meeting, I find myself writing notes that aren't necessarily being discussed, but if something's brought up in conversation, for example, I know somebody at XYZ company, and I, I know that I want to get in touch with XYZ company. It might not be the best time there to ask, but just having that one little note, he knows somebody from XYZ company. When you follow, you know, you follow up a few days later, a week later, it's an easy way to sort of slide in some of those takeaways that might not be appropriate at the, the time of the meeting. Yeah. And I think that's just reading the situation as well, right? I mean, you're reading that situation and that's, that comes, I think, with a little bit of, you know, acumen, business acumen, right? You've, you've sort of, again, hacked that idea, right? Where, okay, when, I, when I'm in the meeting, I'm not necessarily going to do this right away, but I'm going to make a note to come back to it whenever I do follow up. And it makes you more effective as a business person. Absolutely. Yeah. It's efficient. You, you're able to focus on what's relevant at the time, but not lose something that might be valuable at a different time. Most definitely. So let's talk a little bit about how you guys have expanded. So give us, you know, give the audience a little bit of like a timeline of like maybe some of the first places that you guys expanded your business to from where it started, because I think that's a really interesting story. I mean, starting from one location and then moving to other locations across the nation, and then maybe even give us like a highlight or, or some, some potential of what the future holds. Sure. Yeah. So I don't like to use the word pivot because I think that often signals that something wasn't going right or that there was this, you know, huge change of course. But the business has evolved, you know, different ways over time. And so we started in the Hamptons. And, and what's interesting is, is the core focus of what we do hasn't really changed, but how we position it, how we generate customers, where we do it, all that sort of stuff has really evolved. And so, as I mentioned, initially, you can park in town, there's an empty parking lot, we'll get people to the beach. And what we did was we worked with advertisers to wrap these cars and create a brand experience. And obviously, with the audience in the Hamptons, it's a sought after media market for advertisers. So we said, let's make it completely free. We'll use electric cars, which will cut out the cost of fuel and reduce submissions at the beaches. And we'll work with advertisers to pay for it. So that model worked. It was, it was profitable. We were able to roll that money back into our expansion and growth. And then we expanded. That was the ad-supported model. Again, the company was called the free ride. But what we were doing in hindsight was really a last mile solution before that buzzword sort of became what it, what it has today. So we used the profits to then 
expand around the Hamptons and the Jersey Shore in South Florida and later Santa Monica and partnered up with one of our partners now, Jason Bagley. And the ad-supported model worked well, but there was only so many Hamptons or Santa Monicas out there that that were going to demand this sort of, that we're going to create this sort of media demand from our advertising partners. So then in 2016, we started working closely with the city of San Diego. And what happened was the city was looking for a downtown circulator. They, like many cities, were facing traffic and congestion problems. They were facing high demands for parking with limited parking. And so they were looking at a more traditional fixed route, sort of hop on, hop off bus that would cruise around the downtown area. And they had some consultants look at that. And unfortunately, it was going to be really expensive. The ridership was really unknown. And at the time, Lyft and Uber have have sort of you know hit the scene and, and people want things on demand. So walking to a bus stop to wait for the bus to go a mile down the road was really a thing of the past. And that's when our eyes opened up and we said, wait, the beach shuttle is a lot more than a beach shuttle. We can offer the same user experience that people like about Lyft and Uber with on-demand features and knowing where the car is and wait times. We can combine that with what cities look for in their sustainability goals, quality control, job creation, and cost benefits. So that was our pitch to the city of San Diego. We were fortunate to win a contract with the city. They dubbed the service FRED, so free rides everywhere downtown. That service has been highly utilized and successful. It's it's won some awards. And what we did was basically build a mini electric Uber for the city, paid for by the city, controlled by the city, but run and operated by us. With that, we still have the ability to work with our advertising partners. But what we do now is is we share that revenue with our city or transit partner. So that was our first transit contract. And then from there, we were fortunate to receive interest from a number of other cities, private developments, mixed-use facilities. But, But everything we do is focused on short trips. So zero to two and zero to three miles. And as it turns out, about a third of all vehicle trips in the U.S. are two miles or less. So there's about 125 billion trips a year out there that are people taking a car or taking a a taxi or, or Uber to go less than two miles down the road. And so that's really where our focus has remained. And fortunately, there, there's no there's no shortage of of opportunities where people need to go two miles or less. So you mentioned that you guys had had been awarded a contract with the city, right? So there's, you know, anytime you're lobbying for, you know, I shouldn't say lobbying, but when you're working towards securing government dollars, right, there's usually a lengthy request for proposal or a request for quote, like there's like a contract process, right? And as a startup, how did you navigate that process, right? Did you guys utilize like small business administration resources? Like what did you guys do? Because that's something I think that is one of those, some companies might look at it as like a black arts, right? Like a dark arts, right? Like it's, you know, how do you get these government dollars? How do you get these government contracts? Because that's not easy, right? It's, it's a process. You have, to, you have to meet a lot of requirements in order to, to win those contracts. And, you know, I'm sure because you guys are a new service, you know, there was probably some stuff that they were like, well, we don't know how to, you know, necessarily did you have to walk the city through the process to say this is what we can do and then they write the rfp so that it fits what you guys do or how did that work 
Yeah, so in San Diego, we replied to an RFP that the the city had crafted. And and in that situation, they were looking for a downtown circulator, and they weren't overly specific. They were open to new ideas, and I think we were fortunate there. Selling to, to cities or government and the same is true with large enterprises. You know, large corporations are can be create long sales cycles as well. Can be tough. I think a lot of the value that we offer as a company is our ability to do that, and that's that's one of you know the ingredients in our secret sauce. But at the same time, it was it was a very new industry, and we and it still is, and and we were really the most experienced operator. So. You know, we want somebody with three to five years of experience running fleets of electric shuttles is a common call out or, or requirement on some of these RFPs. Well, there's not too many companies out there that have over five years of experience running fleets of electric shuttles with teams of W2 drivers and an on-demand app. And so while there's definitely a learning curve, there is also a snowball effect where it speeds up and, you know, an operator, once you topple that first domino, which can take a while the other ones start to fall. And, and there's also a validation. You know, if, if San Diego, the city of San Diego is willing to work with us, then other cities are more comfortable in that process. It's interesting because when you talk to investors, you know, they get the, I'll get the, oh, selling the cities, that can be tough. And I think that's true if you've never done it before. I think that's true if you're lazy. <laughs> and I think that's true. But then it, what's interesting to me is then the next question is, what are your recurring revenues look like? And, you know, once you're in the door, Cities are great partners because they want to see you succeed. They want to see this is a utility and a service they're offering offering their community. And and fortunately, we've had really great response from our riders. So it's it's helpful to sell to a city or to work with the city in general when you have a large number of residents and visitors that are that are really enjoying and appreciating the service. So it kind of goes both ways. Yeah, it can be tough, but at the same time, it also leads to great customers. And, and ultimately, that's what any business wants are, are good customers. So did you already have experience with RFPs through previous employment? Or was that just something that you guys just learned as you went along? Some experience, but more at sort of the corporate level. So I, I spent some time, you know, working in consulting, the initial motto in our business was we'll figure it out. And I think that's kind of what we we did with our first RFP. And I think fortunately, we have a really good product that aligned with what the customers were looking for. So we were batting a thousand out of the gate with the RFPs. I, I know that that's not sustainable, but <laughs> fortunately, you know, we found a good opportunity that really fit the product that we offered and that we have a lot of experience offering. So I think those all helped. But yeah, we'll figure it out has been a, a common theme. I, I didn't, I don't think anybody knew much about electric shuttles when, when we started back in 2011. And, and you learn a lot along the way. And Google, research, reading, learning, listening to podcasts are just invaluable resources. And there's more of those today than there ever have been. Absolutely. So the vehicle itself, is that something that you guys designed or did you have, or is this something that you guys are using from a, a company that already has the design and everything? Because it's not a, when I look at the shuttle, obviously there's, everybody gets their own door and it, it really is like a little, like almost look like a little trolley, right? Is that something that you guys have like the IP on or how did that work out? No, we've used the same types of vehicles, except for we, we've incorporated a couple in some of our routes, but we've pretty much used the same types of vehicles since we started because they work well for our types of services. So we're looking at, at more congested downtown areas with lower speeds. We like that everyone gets their own doors because it helps 
well, the passengers really like it, but it also helps reduce boarding times. They're noticeable, so that helps with our advertising partners. So we like these these vehicles, but everything we build is is with the notion that we're vehicle agnostic. So we own our app, which is proprietary, and the flip side of the app is really a, a robust management dashboard that helps us manage driver brake schedules, vehicle charging schedules, rider demand, and putting all those pieces together. I call it just a really complicated game of Tetris that we're good at playing on the back end. That's really sort of the IP that the, the, the company is focused on, among other things, and the, and the sales process is another. But we do think that you know it's been exciting because as more and more electric vehicles have, have come online and become available, we'll have more options. We also think that you know one day down the road, autonomous vehicles will be a part of this business in certain capacities where you know we're good at managing drivers, running operations, managing vehicles, and handling demand in a, in a strategic way. And, and I think the vehicles can change, but for now, or they work for what we're doing. So you guys work with some really big names when it comes to advertising, right? I've seen you know, Ralph Lauren, I've seen Chick-fil-A. I mean, these are some really big corporate companies, right? What has that been like? And has there been any of them that when, have you had to turn anybody away because it was just not a fit for you guys? And how did you have that conversation? What was that like? So the advertising model, you know, was really how we started. And, and I love, you know, the product that we offer our advertising partners because it's noticeable outdoor media. It's in congested areas or downtown environments. And it's more than just a billboard because it's actually providing a, an eco-friendly and valuable service to the community. And there's a level of engagement with our passengers. So we've done things like product sampling. There's video ads on the inside and or video screens that double as, as photo booths so people can take a selfie. The passengers are often pretty active on social media. So it's really become sort of this 360 advertising product. I used to handle that. Fortunately, we have our head of brand partnerships, Allison Brown, is, is very experienced in the outdoor media. And she's done a great job sort of spearheading that, that part of the business. But it's interesting because you mentioned Ralph, Ralph Lauren and Chick-fil-A. And, and we've been fortunate that a lot of different brands from totally different verticals have been interested. We have had to say no in some cases, whether it's for competitive reasons, you know, we're working with a direct competitor in the environment, uh, yeah. in, in the market. Also, tobacco and firearms, we, we, we stay away from for branding reasons. Alcohol, we normally require drink responsibly messaging, which I think lines up really well with a free way to get home. <laughs> but yeah, there's not, you know, fortunately, we've been receptive, except for the, the obvious, you know, yeah. we don't want to promote certain things in certain areas. Right. No, I mean, it sounds like you guys have a core set of values that you guys want to you know, keep. And that, I think that goes, you know, goes down the road of building a company culture, right? So as you've expanded your company, how has that culture developed? And, you know, what are some of the things that you notice are, you know, this has been instrumental in really taking our company forward as far as culture goes and managing? Because, You've got a team that's obviously grown from just you and your co-founder to X amount of employees. What's that been like and how has that changed? We've grown and it's challenging, you know, to grow in that there's more people to manage and there's and prioritizing tasks. And I think what's been interesting is, you know, when there was three of us, then five of us, then six of us, we all wore a lot of hats. And so now that there's 
is 12 at the, the corporate level and then a handful of, of regional managers and turning generalists into specialists is something that we're looking to do. So, you know, if, if I know Jose is handling email marketing, social media, the customer service inbox, and I don't know, name another one, you know, what do you actually want to be working on if we trim this down a little bit? And then how can we hire other people to fill in those, those gaps? And as far as culture goes, you know, I, th- I think the team is very behind the mission. It's a very obvious win-win-win. You know, riders want on demand. The environment needs electric and shared rides. And cities need solutions like this. So, you know, it's easier to get a team behind a product that, you know, I think and believe they all believe in. And then the last part, I, I think, is, is self-starters. You know, having the hiring process is, is so much more important than I think I even realized when we first started where it, it's more important to to take your time and make sure you have the right people. Because when you have, especially in our case, where we have a divided workforce, you don't want to have to police people. You want them to want to work and, and you, know, you need people that are innately self-starters to do that. And so, you know, that's been, we're very fortunate that our team is made up of a, of a lot of individuals that are motivated. Yeah, that's really important. We were talking about that just for a little bit before we started recording, which, you know, sort of the hiring process and looking at, you know, when you're, when you're evaluating candidates and it's sort of looking for certain telltale characteristics that, you know, okay, they're going to be a good fit, you know, as an employee and for the culture. And, you know, obviously I always like to joke around and say, when you, when you interview someone, you meet their representative, it's not until after they get hired that you really get to meet them. So sometimes it doesn't work out whatsoever. And I've heard other people say, you know, hire slow, you know, fire quickly, things like that. You know, when it comes to scaling up, what would you say have been the biggest challenges for you guys as a company and how did you overcome them? We're still scaling. So, you know, with that, you know, comes a lot of a lot of factors. I think, you know, from James, James is a co-founder and COO, you know, scaling those operations are hard. And I think one of the things that, that he's been great at is, is, finding ways to make that management more efficient and using technologies and taking the time to implement processes that you know you can use again. And, you know, oftentimes you get, you're really busy and setting up a new process for managing expenses or something, you know, is, is, a, is a heavy lift and, and it's not something you want to necessarily take on. But it pays dividends because, you know, your 10, 20 hours now are going to save the team 100 hours over the course of a year so or more, you know. So, so I think taking the time to actually put processes in that, that are going to help in the long run, even though they feel like they're, you know, time, time sucks now. I think, you know, raising capital is always a challenge. We've been fortunate that we've bootstrapped for a long time and, you know, now and so we haven't really had to raise capital. but. We did do a seed raise and we were fortunate to get some great investors involved then, which has been great. But going through that process, you know, is is always a challenge. Keeping up with the growth rate, managing people. As you add more people, there's more people to manage. And I think putting the right processes in place there are also important. The other thing I think is is sort of managing focus. And so we're fortunate that we get opportunities coming in from all over the country. Somebody in Little Rock, Arkansas is, I'm making this up, but, you know, is looking for a shuttle solution. And, you know, 
when you're early, you want to say yes to a bunch of things. And I think then as you grow, you need to learn to say no to more things and focus on South Florida, New York, and California, where we're already successful. We already have a team. We already have the operations. Even if those, you know, the fruit might not be hanging as low in the long run, it's, it's worth the time. And so that's definitely been a challenge is to weigh opportunities against distractions. Yeah. When you, you mentioned, you know, raising, raising capital, what are some things like, you know, as you know, entrepreneurs go towards that road of raising capital, what are some questions that you probably ask yourself before you decide to take somebody's check? Or what are some things that, you know, because, you know, there's, there's people out there that will write you a check, but you may not want to take their money for whatever reason it might be. What are some questions, like qualifying questions you ask yourself or maybe even think about before you decide to say, yeah, you know, I think this is a good fit? Yeah. You know, even before the check, I think determining how much capital you need to raise, what it's going to be used for. We're not one of these companies that just, you know, plays alphabet soup and is raising their A so that they can go raise their B. You know, we want to make sure that there's a return on the investment for our investors and for us. And there's two sides of that. You know, on one side, you're better off owning 10% of a $100 million company than you are owning 100% of a $1 million company. On the other side, there's no sense taking capital to take capital so that you can go and, and then you find yourself needing to spend money on things that might not be in line with what the core business is or over investing into new ideas that don't have much substantial analysis behind them. And so that's always the balance initially is, is how much are we raising? What do we need it for? And then to answer your question about the, you know, determining, you, you get it. Nobody writes a check after the first phone call. So you, you tend to understand people and how they work as you go through that due diligence process. And, and that can be a good signal as to whether or not, you know, there's somebody that you're, you want on board. And then the last part I think that's important for others that might be raising venture capital is what the fund's duration is, because that's a question that I think founders often overlook. And if the fund has to pay back all of their investors in 18 months, then it might not be the best fit if you think that your growth plan is going to be you know, a 24, 36-month plan. And then you start getting pressure and from above. So yeah, you know, long-winded answer there, but but there's a lot of thought that goes into it. No, no, I appreciate that because, you know, that's something that people, you know, do want to be aware of as they're going down that road of raising capital. I mean, I I hear it a lot, especially in you know, startup communities and, you know, entrepreneurship, you know, people raising capital and you know, you, you mentioned it and you said, I, I, we're not playing the alphabet game where it's ABC. I'd never heard that before. That's really, that's really funny. But there's a huge difference between, you know, raising capital just to raise capital and, you know, growing your revenue to support your business, right? You guys have been bootstrapping, supporting your business, feeding the baby with, you know, with the mother's milk, if you will, and not having to supplement with outside nourishment until you really feel like, okay, now is a good time. And it's a patience game, it sounds like, right? It's, you have to be patient. You have to really, you know, we talked about this critical thinking, right? You have to critically think through that process before you decide to say, yes, this is good or no, not the right time or, you know, not the right fit. And so I really appreciate you taking time to detail that out because that's, again, a little bit of the behind the scenes process, you know, thinking through like a process. What do I need to do to make sure that 
not only does my company survive, but it thrives, you know, as we continue to move forward. So looking forward, with that being said, where's circuit going? Obviously, you guys are coast to coast. Are you guys coming to Houston? When are you guys coming to Texas? So we we actually, we've run cars at an ad-supported capacity in Houston in the past. And we, we have a great partnership in Texas with our operators, Brandy and Jesse. Although they've been very busy with a, a current program we're running in the community of West Dallas. So Houston has been on our sites for quite a while. I think there's a lot of transportation gaps that we can help fill in the area. So I would, you know, almost put the Texas area, you know, into a key focus area. That's probably the the fourth focus area, Houston, Austin, and Dallas. And the program in West Dallas has really gone well. We were fortunate to have a large corporation fund a pilot for a disadvantaged neighborhood or LMI, low moderate income neighborhood. That was also a transit desert where there was long gaps to the existing transit. So we've really been this connector piece and the feedback from riders has been amazing. I mean, reducing commuting costs, reducing commuting times, creating clean tech jobs. And so we're sort of working with a handful of groups in Houston. We hope to sort of replicate what we've done in West Dallas. And it's a beast of a market. And there's a lot of potential coverage areas all, you know, right in, in Houston, we could probably have 10 different locations. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and I mean, the, the city has just been expanding exponentially since. So Unfortunately, the way Houston's built is circle upon circle upon circle. It's almost like a big target. And every circle that we add just starts to build out the city and then create these issues of transportation needs because the further you live from the city, even if your job's in the city or even if your job's on the other side of town, I mean, you really can't survive here without a car. And so, you know, even if it was just something that was you know, okay, you know, local community college where students needed to get to school, right? Or some, you know, we've got a lot of these little hubs around the city where it would be a huge impact improvement to have first mile, last mile solution, because we don't necessarily need to take a $5 minimum Uber to get, you know, a mile down the road, right? And also, I think to help complement some of the existing transit infrastructure, if you get a free ride to the train, Option one is you either walk to the train a mile down the road and then nobody wants to do that. So they just go get in their car. But (laughs) if you have an on-demand free way to get to that train, all of a sudden that becomes a more attractive option. So we really try to be as complimentary as we can be to best utilize infrastructure that's already been built and might be underutilized because of the car culture that, that we all live in. Yeah. And we have a lot of major events, right? So we have huge events that would be a big market, you know, where you're looking at, you know, Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo or sporting events and things like that. We also have Galveston down the road, which, you know, parking on the seawall is horrendous, right? So that's another thing that would be interesting to see. So, no, I really appreciate you taking some time to visit with us and talk about your experience and share a little bit about your company. You know, the way we connected was through the pitch party for, I want to say the Canon, right? So we're really excited to see you guys continue, you know, this trajectory that you're on. And I'd really like to have you back in the future to, you know, catch up and see where the company has gone in the next couple of years, or maybe even shorter than that in the next, you know, six to 12 months, because obviously you guys are in this growth phase. So a lot could change between now and then, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. And hopefully we can, we can have you out in the car in Houston in, in the not too distant future. So I would love that. Really appreciate the time and, and having me on and, and all that you do with the podcast. It's, it's been great. So before we leave, I want you to let the listeners know how they can learn about you, your company, and how they can connect with you guys. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you want to get a ride, you can download the Circuit app. If you search Ride Circuit on the App Store or Google Play Store, you'll, you'll see the app there. And then if you're in, in any of our geofenced coverage areas, you can get a ride on demand. If you are interested in the company, either for advertising purposes, general information, interested in bringing Circuit to your town, our website's www.ridecircuit.com. And then we're pretty active on social media, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. And you can reach us via email, info at ridecircuit.com. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Alex. And I wish you guys nothing but the best and big success for you guys. And I hope to hear from you again soon. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was great speaking with you, Jose. Okay. Cheers. Take it easy. You too. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.